Well, today we're finishing our series on forgotten virtues, and, and I began this series uh, four weeks ago, and I said that, that why are virtues forgotten? Uh, virtues are forgotten because I think normally we think we expect the worst out of people, and then when someone does something that's nice or good for us, we're shocked, and we're just like, wow, that's a great virtue. In week one, we, we talked about the virtue of honor, and I shared with you that, that we're to honor God above all things and, and place our honor there, but that we're also to honor leaders, uh, especially those in leadership roles above us, that we need to learn how to honor that. We talked about purity in week number two, and I, and I broke that down and, and talked to you about that purity is the pureness of heart, the purity of heart, and we, we walked through what it means to, to have that virtue of purity. We talked about loyalty, and I shared that that, that was another forgotten virtue, and, and we learned there that, that our loyalty needs to be to the Lord, our loyalty needs to be to our family and our friends, and we need to be loyal to the church, and we talked about what that means. And last week, I talked about integrity, and I challenged us, and I said that, that when we left worship last week, as well as coming into this week, that my challenge was that the person that you are in private needs to be the person that others see in public and that we need to uphold the virtue of integrity. And today we're talking about the last one, and this is one that I, that I believe is, is way forgotten, and that is the, the virtue of gratitude. We're going to talk about the virtue of gratitude. Um, say that word with me, gratitude. Yeah, that's a word that I, I really want us to really focus on today and lift that up as we're speaking well, many years ago, a consultant was out of Boston and, and was doing a survey, and that consultant began to look at all the different generations of people that we have in America. And did you know for the first time in history, we have six generations of individuals alive in our country today? And this consultant was um, trying to ask a very important question of all the generations, but not to see what the differences were, but to see if there was a common thread between every generation that was there. So let's, let's understand what the generations alive today are. Here's the first one, the, the GI generation. Those were folks that were born between 1900 and 1924. And as you can imagine, this is um, one of the great generations that, that is, uh, most of them have gone on to heaven by now, and some are, are still here, but that's the GI generation generation. Then we have the builder generation. Those are the folks that are born between 1925 and 1945. Now these are the individuals that basically were responsible for the infrastructure of our country. They're the ones who vest into buildings. They, they love brick and mortar and they see the tangible aspects. If we were to go back for churches that have been alive for a lot of years, this is the generation that, that funded the buildings that we see on a lot of our campuses. Then we have the boomer generation. The boomers are around 1946 to 1964. Any, any boomers in the room? Yeah? Do you all remember Woodstock? Then you weren't there. Okay. <laughs> anyway, so, so, so this, that's, uh, that's the boomer generation. Generation X, you know, um, now we're getting into the alphabet. So Generation X is 1965 to 1979. And this is the generation that's trying to negotiate where is their place in life. And they are really, really concerned about the resources and the assets and, and, and about all the natural places and things of this earth. Will they have enough resources? And, and have we in the boomer and builder generation squandered them all? And they're really focused on that. Then we have the millennial generation. Um, Y'all have heard the term millennials. These are 1980 to 1999. And what's interesting about this generation is they, they, they were born and they, they never knew life without the internet. They never knew life without 
the, the laptop, they never knew life without a cell phone. Now, I remember my first cell phone. Did, do y'all remember your first cell phone? Mine was like a 25-pound brick. And, and you kind of, you know, held that, and, and you kind of like did the neck exercises to build up a little bit. And I remember that the, that the uh, plan back then was like 20 minutes for 100 bucks a month. And it was, anybody have a bag phone? Anybody? Nobody wants to raise their hand on that one. Okay. Yeah, but those bag phones were out. So, so millennials are the ones that technology is driving everything with who they are. The last generation is Generation Z. And that's born in the year uh, 2000 to the present. So that's the really young folks that are, that are out there uh, and the ones that, um, that, that are in technology as well as trying to define what, what their identity is. Well, the consultant asked a question, and the consultant was trying to get some information about the commonality between these generations. And as the consultant asked a question, one thing came out, and it was one word that every generation from the GI generation to the Generation Z, all those generations shared together. It was one word, and it began with the letter E. And it wasn't exceptional. It wasn't uh, expectant. Do you know what the word was? entitled, that all generations have a sense of entitlement about them, that no matter what generation you're born in, there's at some place in your life that you feel entitled to something, and that's something that we all share across all generations. So, so let's get um, um, a working definition of entitlement this morning. Here it is. It's having a right to something. So you have a right to that. I mean, you just believe that, that you were born for that right. That's called entitlement. That the, the belief that one is inherently deserving of privileges or special treatment. You deserve it because you work for it, or you deserve it because of who you are. Now, we might look at the builder generation, and maybe some are entitled about Social Security. Lots of conversation in the political thresholds about whether Social Security will be around or whether we modify it. But, but darn it, you know, the builder generation, I worked for it, I want it, it better not change, it's there, it's, it's all mine. And we look at the, the boomer generation, and the boomer generation was a generation that, that spent a lot of money. And they're basically, hey, I'm entitled to have everything that I want, no matter what the cost is. So we see some things that are happening with entitlements amongst all of these particular uh, groups of people. Why is it that we are feeling entitled to things? Uh, somewhere along the line, we, we removed ourselves from heart thinking and heart living to head thinking, or, or we move ourselves, I should say, from head to heart. The heart and head are constantly combating each other, and that battle basically is that I'm entitled to it, I deserve it, uh, it's owed to me, and we make decisions in life that are based upon that. And that's where our generations begin to clash with the things that we see. Um, if you're a parent, you probably know all about that. Some of us as parents, when we raised our kids, we looked at our kids and we said, you know, I had it really tough. I don't want you to have it as tough as I did. So therefore, what is it that you need and I'll buy it for you? Some of us as parents still do that with our kids today, even when they're adults. And, and maybe you're, you grew up in a household where, where your neighbor's kids, uh, the 10-year-old, had a new pair of Jordan sneakers well, next thing you know, your kid had to have them. Why? Because you had to keep up with what the neighbor's kid had. And we've created this scenario of entitlement even within the young people um, of, of our lives. But believe it or not, though, gratitude is the antithesis. It's the, it's the opposite of, it's the good opposite 
of entitlement. So how do you live out of entitlement? How do you get rid of entitlement in your life? You become a person of gratitude. A person of gratitude. Gratitude's not hard, folks. What, what is gratitude? Saying hi to somebody, that's gratitude. Going out to eat and being nice to your server, that's gratitude. Leaving a tip like you never thought you would ever leave before, that's gratitude. Writing a note of encouragement or, or just waving at somebody and acknowledging that they're in the world with you, that's gratitude. You see, gratitude doesn't cost anything. It's so easy, and yet we struggle with sharing that. I want to walk us through two stories in Luke's gospel this morning. The first one is out of Luke 17. The second one is out of Luke 15. In Luke 17, we have an interesting situation where Jesus finds himself in the company of 10 men. And all of a sudden, something life-changing happens in this particular story. Jesus comes in contact with these 10 men, and here's what Luke writes. It says, it happened as Jesus made his way toward Jerusalem, he crossed over the border between Samaria and Galilee. Remember, there's friction between Samaritans and Jews, and Jews and Samaritans. Jews didn't like Samaritans, Samaritans didn't like Jews, but Jesus is making his way through this region. And as he entered a village, 10 men, all lepers, met him. And they kept their distance, but they raised their voices calling out, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. And taking a good look at him, at them, Jesus said, go now and show yourself to the priests. Let me pause for a second because I think it's important that we bring some context into this. Leprosy was a, was a huge disease in the ancient world. In fact, um, it, was, it was so bad that, that people who had leprosy were taught that not only were they socially unclean, but they were ceremonial unclean, that they could not go to the temple to be healed. In fact, they had to move out of their communities. They had to move out of their homes. They had to move out of their communities. They had to go outside of the village. And if anyone came near them, they had to, to shout out loud, stay away from me, I'm diseased. You can't come near me, I'm a leper. And we see that there's lots of challenges that are happening. Now, now what did leprosy physically do to the body? Well, it, it created lots of things. In fact, it, it, it deteriorated the central nervous system. In fact, many people with leprosy would go to sleep at night and because neurologically they weren't in tune with their limbs, they would wake up one morning and a rodent would have eaten off a finger and they would have never felt it. This is how bad leprosy was. It would leave boils on their bodies and, and, and the boils would ooze and they would have foul odors and people would look at people with leprosy and they would basically say, get out of here and no priest um, in the temple would condone a behavior or anybody with leprosy to be near the cleanliness of what the temple had to offer. In Leviticus 13, it basically tells us and reminds us that, that if you were a leper, you were an outcast. Now imagine for a moment that you had to move out of your home. Imagine you could no longer hug your spouse. Imagine you could no longer hug and show affection to your children, that you were ostracized from that. Some of these men and women live for years, if not their entire lives, being isolated away. And it tells us what this situation is. As Jesus walks into town and these 10 men with leprosy, they shout out to Jesus, Jesus have mercy on us. Jesus, come, come save us. You see, they had heard rumors about Jesus. They had, they had heard that Jesus could, could heal people and that he had healed people. They heard that he was the Messiah. They heard that he was the chosen one, that he was God himself. So therefore, they were willing to take a chance. 
And as they took that chance, they called out to Jesus for that healing. Jesus looks at them as they say, heal us, and he says, fine, get up and go see the priest. Now in their mind, they're thinking, Jesus, you gotta be crazy because the priest is the one who ran us out of town. But Jesus said, go see the priest. And we learn in the story that as the men go to see the priest, on their way there, the scripture says, they are healed of their affliction. Here's what it says in verses 15 and 16. They went, and while still on their way, they became clean. They were healed. They no longer had leprosy. And one of them, when he realized that he was healed, he turned back around, shouting his gratitude, glorifying God. So there's 10 who call out for healing for Jesus. They are healed, and one turns around and gives glory to God. Now, how many does that leave who aren't giving glory to God? You guys passed first grade math. Good job. So nine of them aren't. And this man kneels at the feet of Jesus, and he worships Jesus. And Jesus looks at him and says, you're a Samaritan. Why'd you come back? And, and weren't there 10 of you? Where's the other nine? And the man is exchanging with Jesus in all of this. Jesus says to the man, you're welcome that you've been healed. But where's the other nine? You're just one. Now, now here's what's ironic about this. The other nine, we, we read into the story that they were God-believing Jews. They believed in God. The Samaritan would have been the one who did not believe in the God. He would have likely believed in an idol or, or, or a false god or something like that, but yet he's the one who recognizes those who had faith in God ditched God, and they go on their merry way. It's almost as if they felt entitled. Well, Jesus will heal us. Why? Because we're entitled to that. And Jesus heals them, but yet they give no gratitude. The man, the Samaritan, walks back. So as we read this story in Luke 17, it, it begs a question, doesn't it? So, so when someone shows you gratitude, when someone does something, when they pray for you and bring healing into your life, when God performs a miracle, and folks, God performs miracles every day, and a lot of us, we, we think it's something else that brought that, or it's luck, or it's happenstance, or it's chance. It's God. And we've got to hold on to that. And God does that for you. How many of us are like the one? And we give credit to God for all of those things. And how many of us are like the nine? Ah, well, it's just another thing. And we go on with our life. We need to hold that value of gratitude. And we need to hold tight to it. Here's the second story, Luke 15. There's three significant stories in the Gospel of Luke. There's the, the, the shepherd looking for the lost sheep, there's the woman who sweeps her house looking for the coin. These are all kingdom of God stories. And the third one is where we want to land. It's called the prodigal son. What is a prodigal? A prodigal is someone who just spends money you know, willy-nilly. They, they just get money and they spend it frivolously. That's the definition of a prodigal. So Jesus comes in contact, uh, or, or I should say God tells it, Jesus tells this story um, of this prodigal as he's beginning to share a little bit more about it. So, so what happens in this story? So there's two sons, and, and both sons know that they are entitled to their father's wealth. Many of us, when we have children, what do we do? We go to a lawyer, 
We have a will written out. We distribute our assets so that at the time of what? Our death, that those assets then are liquidated to our beneficiaries or they're given to our children or whatever the case may be. It was no different in the ancient world. But what was different was that the father worked out all of this with the sons. This father in Luke 15, the third story, has two sons. The younger son comes to the father and says, Dad, I know that you have me in your will. I know that, that uh, you have a vast estate, but what I want you to do is I want you to sell the portions that you're gonna give to me and can you just give it to me now? I mean, dad's not even dead. And what the son's really communicating to his father is I wish you were dead so that I could have your money, okay? So the father does what he thought a father should do. The father goes through the pains of selling off land, of selling off livestock, of selling off whatever assets that he has to give to the son. Now, in the ancient world, uh, when you had children, so here was two, so what a father would do is he would divide his, his assets into thirds. He would give the oldest two-thirds, that's called the double portion, and he would give the remaining one one-third. If you had four kids, you'd make it into five shares, and the oldest would get two-fifths and each one after that would get a fifth. It would be called a double portion. So the son takes this money, and he runs off, and he squanders it. He's living loose with women. He's buying whatever he wants to. He's just living life to its fullest. It's not a life that his father taught him. It certainly isn't a life in the Lord. And all of a sudden, the son finds out that the world has crashed around him. And here's how what Luke says here. Luke says, it wasn't long before the younger son packed his bags and went for a distant country, and there undisciplined and dissipated, he wasted everything he had. The son wanted instant gratification, so he takes what his dad gave him, and he runs off with it. You see, TV, web searches, a lot of things in life today teach us that it's a, buy, or it's a buy now, pay later mentality. You can get what you want now and not have to worry about paying for it, whether it's reverse mortgages, whether it's credit cards, whether, whatever it is. And, and go ahead and get what you want so that what you're entitled to, you can have now. And don't worry about it, but just kind of pay later. And this is exactly what came here. A friend of mine said that, that maturity in life is really delayed gratification. That I'm mature in my faith when I delay my gratification. That I don't have to have it, and I don't have to have it now, but I can wait until the time is appropriate. Well, speaking of delayed gratification, there was a little experiment that was done, and it used children. And they used children and marshmallows. So the person comes into a room where children are and she'll give them a marshmallow and she'll say, I'm gonna leave for about 15 minutes. If you don't eat the marshmallow while I'm gone, when I come back, you'll get another one. If you eat it while I'm gone, nothing. Let's watch and see what they do here. Okay, so I have one marshmallow for each of you. Okay. Don't eat it. And here's the deal. You can either eat it now or you can wait till I get back and you can have two. Okay? Okay. So eat it now or wait till I get back and you can have two. And I'll be back in a little bit. If we soon. wait, we, we'll, you'll get us two? Yep, if you wait, you'll get two. Or you can eat it now, whichever you want. Okay? I'll be back in a little bit. Sorry. I'm going to wait. Thank you. 
He ate hers. <laughs> That's what Adam did. He, he took it like a man. He blamed his wife. So, so, so you know, even, even the, the, the most remote things, the smallest things, delayed gratification, it's, it's like we have to have it now. So this story of these sons begins to develop. So, so what happens is the younger son realizes, I've really blown it. I mean, literally, I've blown it. And, and I want to go back and live with my parents. I want to live with my dad, and I want to honor God. But I don't even think my dad, I don't want my dad to even see me as a son anymore. I just want him to see me as a slave because he treats his slaves really well, and I don't have the honor anymore to be his son. So all of a sudden, the, the younger son who squandered everything, the prodigal, makes his way back home to the homestead. But, but something interesting is happening here, and we find out that, that the older brother now gets ticked off. He doesn't like what's happening. So here, here's what Luke says. While he was still a long way off, this is the younger son, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. And he ran to his son. He threw his arms around him and he kissed him. And the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger, the, the family signet ring. Bring sandals for his feet. Bring the fatted calf and kill it. Let's have a feast. Let's celebrate. Let's do something great for this son of mine was dead and now he's alive again. He was lost and then he was what? Found. He was found. The older brothers ticked and all this is going on and the older brothers just kind of standing outside at the door of the house and he's going like, that party's stupid anyway. I wouldn't go to that stupid party. And he's just sitting there. He's got this big pouty face on. And the father comes out and he pleads with his older son. He's like, son, come on in. Your brother's back and, and let, let's rejoice that what was lost has been found. And the older brother's still mad. And, well, dad, you know, I, I never dishonored you. I always did what you said. I always got all my work done. I didn't ask for my inheritance, dad. And guess what, dad? Look what he did. He basically stole from you and, and squandered it and he, he wrecked the family name. And, and what do you do? You throw him a big party. Did you ever throw me a party, dad? I mean, does this sound familiar? And the father looks at this older son, and he's like, you've got to get over this. And see, that's the kind of attitude that a lot of us carry. 
We carry this I deserve something attitude. I deserve a raise. I deserve my boss to notice me. I deserve someone in the neighborhood to, to look at my flowers and say that I have the nicest yard. I deserve, I deserve, I deserve. And yet, that's entitlement. There's no gratitude in that. And God teaches us about gratitude. In fact, we don't deserve anything. But God, through his grace, gives us his love. Gives us forgiveness. Gives us his grace. And God is the one who changes everything that's here. Sometimes we fall prey to what I call circumstantial ungratitude. And that's when we look at our house and we go like, my house isn't big enough, I need a new house. Or I don't like the color of my kitchen. Or, or my church doesn't serve me enough. Or my spouse is a real idiot at times. It's these uncircumstantial things, that, the inconsequential things, and, and, and we get wrapped up in, in just this, the petty stuff. And we become an ungrateful people. And the scripture reminds us how important gratitude is. In fact, the scripture says that what if we were to change who we are? What if we were the ones who got rid of ingratitude of our life? And what if we focused on gratitude for a change? What if we were a people who were grateful for all things? The scriptures remind us that joy comes every morning the scripture reminds us that we're to be a joyful people. It says, turn our song into praise, not complain about things that happen in our lives. Turn mourning into dancing, the writers of the scripture say. We're to move in that direction. The apostle Paul, if there was anybody ever who could complain about what life dealt him, who could complain about the fact that he was in prison, he was hunted down by many, he, he uh, he was threatened by his life. Uh, Paul had a horrible, horrible life, but he was on mission and he was on purpose and he recognized that no matter what, that there was praise for God in all that he did. And Paul writes these words in Philippians. He says, actually, I don't have a sense of needing anything personally. I've learned by now to be quite content whatever my circumstances. I'm just as happy with little as with much, with much as with little, and I've found the recipe for being happy, whether full or hungry, hands full or hands empty. Paul says he learned how to be content. He learned how to be grateful. You and I, we need to learn how to be grateful. How do we do that? Here's a couple of steps. Say these with me. I don't need more stuff. Read these with me. I don't need more stuff. I don't need more power. I don't need more money to find contentment in life. All I need is Jesus, and in him, I can have a grateful heart. Amen?